Hi, listeners. I'm your host, Melissa Nunez, and welcome to Candidly Cryptic, your source for all things strange, spooky, and unexplained. Thank you for tuning in for our first episode, but before we dive in, this may come as a bit of a spoiler, as the inspiration for this episode and for this podcast really stemmed from the latest Conjuring installment, The Nun. If you're not a horror buff, I'll lay out the Conjuring franchise as simply as I can. The series cinematically delves into the paranormal investigations by Ed and Lorraine Warren. This probably won't be the last Warren case we go over, as I can't help but feel a small connection to the Warrens. The paranormal investigating couple hails from Connecticut, and whether or not spirits are your thing, they are a household name in these parts. So, where's the spoiler? Well, it's nothing major. Rather, a little clip at the end. And that is The Exorcism of Maurice Frenchie Theriot. The reason I was so amped to talk about this case and cases like it is because often after I've watched movies that are based off of real haunts, I feel disappointed with the cinematics often distracting from the gritty and terrifying aspects of what actually transpired. As soon as I saw the tiny clip of his exorcism at the end, I felt cheated. I know the story. I remember hearing it for the first time and feeling vulnerable, shaken, and disturbed. This is what audiences should have heard, and now you will. Picture it. A small, disheveled, ten-year-old farmer's son. A scanty but muscular young man, cut from grueling hours spent in the fields. Like other farm boys, Maurice was expected to work hard, but it was gravely apparent that other children weren't expected to do nearly as much as Frenchie did in those days. Frenchie was required to do everything a grown farmhand could do, despite his small body and innocent years. Inevitably, Frenchie would fall short of these expectations and would endure smacks, kicks, and more in the name of redemption by his father, Philippe. Everyone who knew Philippe thought he was a loveless man, a poison even Maurice's mother, Alice, couldn't protect him from. Maurice was the first of ten children, and being the eldest meant he was usually the target of his father's cruelty. According to a childhood account from Maurice and Satan's Harvest, it was his father who would call upon a punishment more lasting and tormenting than anything he could ever induce himself. It was on this day after school, a young Maurice went looking for his father. From the house, Maurice could see Felipe enter their barn. Frenchie looked for any training opportunity he could. For the less he fumbled on his chores, the less he was tortured. Maurice hurried down the hill, figuring he could silently watch his father do work and in turn be able to do those chores seamlessly himself later on. As he gazed into the barn, what he caught his father doing was never fully explained, but after being caught, it was an act Philippe would force his son to watch, an act he would then force his son to take part in. Maurice would continue his childhood, living in constant doubt and shame, his head permanently arched and his back slumped from looking to the ground. He could tell no one, not his mother, not his priest, and certainly not his father. As Maurice got older, he would try to join the army, then the National Guard, but each time Philippe would stop him, ending any possibility of a military career before it could begin. Maurice would finally leave his father and everything he knew on his 21st birthday. He moved around from Connecticut back to Van Buren, where he would run into an old flame and his first wife, Christine. With whatever whirlwind passion Christine and Maurice had in the beginning, soon turned to resentment and conflict. According to Maurice, Christine wasn't keeping up with the house, she wasn't putting food on the table, and she couldn't even keep up with her three children. The fights were incessant. On one seemingly normal night of arguing, they were interrupted. 
Christine screamed as she noticed the crucifix on their wall and blood dripping down Christ's leg. In fear, Maurice and Christine ran from the room, convincing themselves that it never happened. The next time the cross bled, it would be during yet another argument. As they saw the blood drip down the crucifix, they dropped to their knees and began to recite the Lord's Prayer. Amen. The couple looked up and saw that the blood had disappeared, but it would definitely not be the last time. Later, Maurice and Christine separated, with Christine moving to Baltimore, Maryland, and Maurice keeping the children in Massachusetts. During this time, Maurice's parents started to struggle financially, so they sold their farm and moved closer to their son in Holyoke. It was also during the separation that Christine was hospitalized with pneumonia. The severity of Christine's condition forced Maurice to realize that he still loved her and that he wanted to be with her. Suddenly, in room 208 of Baltimore City Hospital, he was there, tending to her. When Maurice left, Christine called Alice, enamored by the gesture, with a fresh bouquet in hand. Christine told family how she knew Maurice still loved her, how she knew he would come to her aid. But, in what seemed like moments later, he was knocking on the front door of his mother's Massachusetts home. His mother was stunned. She had just gotten off the phone with Christine, and now, they were face to face. Quickly, Maurice became pale and passed out. When he awoke, neither Alice or he could explain the events. Over the next several years, Christine moved to Texas, Alice became primarily responsible for Maurice's children, and Maurice would jump from factory job to factory job, adopting the nickname Frenchie along the way. In desperation, Maurice took another shot at Van Buren, only to find medial work as a farmhand. That is where he met a ginger-haired woman named Erica. He needed a mother for his children, and she, with a son of her own, needed stability. And so, he was married again. Their nine-year marriage was spurred out of convenience, and the discourse between them reflected just that. The couple quickly realized the two shared little in common and began to lead separate lives entirely. In the fall of 1965, Maurice was keeping pace through a small tomato patch, but his stride was interrupted as he tripped over a wooden crucifix. When he reached down to get a better look, his vision blurred. Maurice began to rub his eyes. When he looked at his hands, he was horrified. Arriving home, Maurice rushed through the front door and into the bathroom. He faced himself in the mirror. Blood was pouring from his eyes. How, he thought. He didn't cut himself. Not that he could remember. Maurice never left the bathroom. Not to get help. Not to see a doctor. But stayed there, watching the viscous crimson spilling from his eyes, soaking his face and saturating his shirt. He was interrupted. From the other side of the door, Erica was asking if he was alright. Maurice once again focused his gaze to the mirror. Unknowingly, 20 minutes had passed. The blood was dry and chap streams cemented onto his face. He quickly cleaned himself and assured his wife he was alright. Erica dismissed the behavior, like everything else, including that night where Maurice would black out and almost crash the car into an oak tree, with Erica having to grab the wheel and force the car off the road. Or like the year before, where their beagle Peter would disappear, and Maurice explaining it away. An accident, a simple hit and run, but Erica knew better, especially when she found a pick. Maurice's bloody pick, left at the site of the alleged fatal collision. A dog Maurice loved, a dog he cried over while digging its grave. Her eyes weren't deceiving her. Erica knew what he was, 
but Maurice refused to take responsibility. It was her that drove him to violence. Erica would eventually leave, Maurice knowing rightfully so. After the separation, Maurice moved to Greenfield, New York, to find better luck with his uncle, Harand. Maurice settled in nicely, finding work on a farm and eventually making some friends, one of which with a daughter, Nancy. In her 40s, Nancy was a divorcee, mother of three, with hazel eyes, reddish-brown hair, and an eloquence that captivated Maurice. In giving Nancy rides to and from work, the two would inevitably become inseparable, eventually moving in together. Life was normal, perfect even. The strange behaviors that had ruined Maurice's other marriages had subsided, but not for long. On the porch of a potential tomato farm in Warren, Massachusetts, the couple was weighing their options, whether the property was worth purchasing. Nancy told Maurice that Jesus would help them decide. It was then Maurice became frenzied, rushing towards Nancy, grabbing the cross from her neck, breaking the chain and throwing it into the woods. Nancy cried, pleading him to stop, but Maurice ran quickly back onto the porch, dazed, mumbling, I have her by the hand, I have her by the hand. Maurice couldn't remember what happened and went off to look for Nancy's cross. When he came back, cross in hand, she asked him where he found it. He said he didn't. A woman had helped him. A woman in white. Nancy asked who the woman was. Maurice hesitated, before responding, that he thought it was her mother. Nancy didn't know what to think. Her mother had been dead for 15 years. In May 1982, the couple decided to buy that farmhouse moving with Nancy and her daughters, Jenny and Lori. The couple had a small wooden food stand where they would sell produce during the autumn months. By all accounts, Frenchie was known as a trustworthy blue-collar man in the community. Police Chief Jerry Cyber even thought so too, until Maurice became more of a nuisance than an asset. It started as rumors. Rumors of his mother-in-law haunting the farm. Rumors of ghosts. Rumors of possession. Strange rumors turned into even stranger occurrences, with Maurice and his wife visiting the police station, carrying all of their firearms in their possession. The couple explained how Frenchie began experiencing dissociative episodes that would provoke thoughts and impulses of violence. The rules of the exchange were simple. No one was allowed to pick up those firearms. No one but Nancy. Seemingly random fires started erupting around the farm, one in a shed far from the house, Another, their vegetable stand. The third, in Jenny's bedroom in the middle of the night. Chief Seibert was determined to help his community. As a seasoned officer, he believed he could be an asset, even to Maurice. But after what he perceived to be his arsons, the chief was sure the entire situation was a ruse. An elaborate scheme developed for a hefty insurance payout. That was until a cold, dark, and snowy morning and a domestic disturbance call that changed the chief's perception of the situation forever. Chief Cyber arrived on the scene to a visibly shaken Nancy. With tears in her eyes, she pointed officers into the kitchen. There, Maurice sat at a table, expressionless, his face bloodied. The officers asked Maurice what happened. Maurice didn't know. Nancy then took the chief into the bathroom, the checkered floors, the medicine cabinet, and the tub, painted and blood, a metallic scent filling the air. Maurice had gone to the bathroom. After a while, Nancy became worried and decided to check on him. When he hadn't answered, she opened the door. There in the tub, 
in a ball, in a pool of his own blood, her husband laid, jerking and convulsing, muttering and moaning. Nancy managed to drag his limp, blood-soaked body to the kitchen, where she propped him into a chair. Her story was interrupted. Another officer was startled in the kitchen as bloody tears began spilling from Maurice's impassive eyes. It was then other officers noticed bloodstains began forming on his shirt. When they removed it, two crosses had been slashed on his back, with no clear perpetrators in sight. That night, the chief knew he had to think objectively. He had to consider all of the possibilities, but he was at a loss. On the farm, the family frequently reported seeing Maurice in two places at once. Cuts would just open on his body. Nancy and Maurice decided to see a priest who would help them decide that the root of their issues was that they were living together unmarried. So, they set a date. And on May 19, 1984, Maurice married his third wife. But even a marriage before God couldn't halt the events that were taking place. From then on, Maurice's luck only got worse. On June 1982, Maurice had a feeling, but it was late, too late to call, so he went to sleep. By morning, cops would be on his front porch with tragic news. Maurice's mother, Alice, and father, Philippe, were dead. A murder-suicide where Philippe turned the gun on Alice, and then on himself. Grief overpowered Maurice. Even in sleep, he would not rest, dreaming of his mother and dreaming of them. Maurice saw it, Alice's entire life, her marriage, the abuse, and even his own leaving. He saw it through his mother's eyes. Then, in an instant, she was in her bed, with Philippe kneeling beside her. Alice couldn't see his hands, but she knew he was holding something. Good morning, he said, in a voice she couldn't recognize. When Alice asked why he wasn't himself, he told his wife that they or not Philippe. Alice was terrified. She kept asking, who are you? What are you? Philippe only taunted in return. Mrs. Stinkney, Mrs. Stinkney, in cowl and beads and dusty garb, the eel is credited with the possession of many marvelous virtues. Philippe went on, incoherently spilling seemingly irrational remarks. Alice, overwhelmed, passed out but was forcibly awakened to a face that barely resembled her husband's. She asked what they were going to do to her. We're going to kill you. Then we're going to kill this disgusting worm that we've used for so many years, he said. The creature said its name was Toys, and that Maurice had invited him. He was going to end Alice and Philippe. There would be no praying, no calling for help. Our Father, who art in heaven... Hallowed be thy name. Alice was dead, with Maurice having to relive her death all over again. From then on, Maurice started having visions, waking covered in blood, finding no wounds. Crucifixes would bleed on the walls, events that were strange and random, but no one was hurt. Not until Christmas 1984, when Maurice was pushed off of a ladder and strangled by an unseen force while trying to put up decorations. Maurice and Nancy were determined to find more happiness in 1985, although things would continue to escalate. That is when they decided to go to Father Beardsley again. Father Beardsley decided to bless the house, 
spraying each room with holy water, assuring the couple they would be safe, but they weren't. Again, he was determined to help the Therios, but he stumbled onto a book by the Warrens and remembered the famed demonologist from Connecticut. He decided to give them a call. Father Beardsley left a message. The Warrens were renowned for what they do, so understandably, they received many calls. But Lorraine knew this was different. As a clairvoyant, she could sense the other person on the other line was deeply distressed. The next day, the Warrens made the long drive from Connecticut to Massachusetts, arriving to the farmhouse to a dazed Maurice. Nancy invited the Warrens inside where they would discuss her husband's life. When it came to Nancy discussing her mother, tears of blood began rolling down Maurice's face. Everyone was stunned, everyone but Nancy, saying, it happens enough. From combing over Maurice's life, Ed was almost certain that he had come under demonic possession and began forming a team to perform an exorcism. Reverend Walter Harris, a spokesman for the Boston Archdiocese, was less reluctant, saying that in his 21-year career, he had never witnessed a true viable case of demonic possession. The church wanted Maurice to undergo a psychological evaluation before continuing with an exorcism and provided a Catholic psychiatrist to conduct an initial assessment. But conflict spurred between Ed and the psychologist during questioning. Ed was under the impression that the physician was trying to imply that Maurice was a sexual deviant, which signaled the Warrens and the Therios to storm out. On the drive back to the farmhouse, Maurice began screaming for help. When they took off his shirt, they saw a cross had been singed onto his back. Ed quickly got into the car, speeding back to the rectory to once again confront the psychologist. If they were going to get an approval from the church, they would need damning evidence. When faced with the burned crucifix, the doctor asked Maurice what he did to hurt himself. Ed, once again enraged by the physician's intolerant questions, said one day he hoped the doctor would be visited by a malevolent, unseen force. But until then, if Maurice needed a doctor, then it sure wouldn't be him. On March 21st, in an article that read, Church Considers Performing Exorcism in Warren, Maurice would not be directly named, but soon the world would know of Nancy's frantic 911 call, as news outlets began running with the story. Maurice and his farmhouse soon became a spectacle, with Chief Cyber often having to turn away tourists. Months later, the day after Easter, Father Beardsley called Etherios to tell them that the church had decided to order another psychological evaluation, this time with a trusted colleague of the Warrens, Bishop Timothy Harrington. Upon arriving to the rectory, Maurice immediately bonded with the bishop. A sense of compassion helped Frenchie develop a trust. In the midst of small talk, the bishop decided he would say an impromptu prayer for Maurice. Maurice's calm demeanor quickly shifted. His brow tensed and swelled. In a voice that was deeper and no longer recognizable, he said, I am in the depths of this man's soul, and I will have it. The bishop was slightly shaken, but was determined to continue. He doused Maurice with holy water. Moments passed. Maurice came to, asking for a cigarette. Afterward, the bishop wished him well, hoping his prayers could offer some peace of mind. The Therios thanked him, accepting the prayer as a kindness, and hopeful that the experience would offer some promise of an exorcism. Months passed, and it was decided that Bishop Robert McKenna would perform a ritual, backed by a team who would assist and be the first ever to record an exorcism. Ed called Maurice into the living room, where he took his place in a chair, with two assistants standing on either side, ready to restrain him if necessary. Bishop McKenna, with his back facing Maurice, started the ritual, leading the group in prayer. Blood started to drip from Maurice's eyes, 
as Lorraine joined the bishop, but abruptly stopped. Dissidents surrounded them. She could sense their evil presence. Bishop McKenna continued to pray as the metal clang of the Theriot's bed chimed from the master bedroom. Quiet at first, the noise grew, soon drowning out everything until they stopped. Bishop McKenna continued to pray. The room fell silent as horrifying unnatural whispers could be heard from the kitchen. As the bishop finished his prayers, he called to apostles, martyrs, confessors, and saints for aid and protection. Unclean spirit, whoever you are, and all your companions who possess the servant of God, the bishop called to the evil. Clanging rang through the bedroom walls once more. Louder and louder, the exorcist's voice mutely bellowed beneath it. Maurice was still bleeding, his face and shirt plastered. I exorcise you, most unclean spirit, invading enemy, Bishop McKenna commanded. Maurice began to savagely moan. His face grew beastly, his skin bubbled, and his pupils narrowed. His body soaked in sweat and blood. The bishop noticed crucifix wounds burned onto Maurice's hands. He who commands you is he who ordered you to be thrown down from the highest heaven into the depths of hell, the bishop sternly spoke. Ed and an assistant began removing Maurice's boots. Bloody stigmata wounds saturated his socks, his shoes filled with blood. Maurice smelled foul, like a putrid stew that filled the room. Maurice's body went limp, his eyes rolled back. Then, as he attempted to stand, several assistants surrounded him, struggling to keep him confined to the chair. I abjure you, in the name of God, tell me your name, the bishop demanded. I am what I am, Maurice responded, with a crooked grin that stretched across his face. The bishop would try again and again, to which Maurice would give the same response. How many of you are there? asked the bishop. I am only one, Maurice replied. What is your name? The bishop asked again. Maurice responded in Latin. You say I'm proud? The demon was toying with them. It was time to free Frenchie once and for all. The bishop lifted his book once more, reciting prayers and holding a cross to Maurice. Instantly, Maurice's face untensed, his skin smoothed over, and immediately asked for Nancy, tightly embracing her. It's over, Maurice. You're finally free, said Ed. The bishop read the final psalm as euphoria swept the room. Days later, Ed would have a heart attack. It would take six months for him to recover. But Maurice wasn't done with the demonologist just yet. Two months after the exorcism, Chief Seibert received a tip that Maurice had raped his 13-year-old stepdaughter. With testimony from a child abuse investigator, the girl's father, and from she herself, the chief had enough reason to make an arrest. After Maurice had gotten away with arson, the chief wanted Maurice to face justice, to accept responsibility and drop the ruse. Despite hesitance from the district attorney's office, they went to court. Again, Maurice would be exonerated. With the complainant's reluctance to testify and as evidence of the exorcism surfaced, the devil made him do it. Or maybe it was his doppelganger, the girl thought. The chief knew Maurice's claims made the case even more complicated, but once again, Maurice would begin experiencing violent impulses. Once again, blood would spill from his eyes and, once again, Nancy would reach out to the Warrens in fear and pleading for help. During this time, their Watley neighbors had reported that Maurice had not been living in the family home. 
Nancy had also filed for divorce and for a restraining order as she feared for her life. One night, Nancy arrived home to a fevered Maurice bursting through the kitchen door, storming at her, shotgun in hand. A struggle ensued, but Maurice bashed Nancy on the side of the head with the butt of the gun. Nancy ran from the home, Maurice shooting at her through the window. She fell, incapacitated from her wounds. Maurice dragged her back inside, telling her, You're going to remember this. As he turned the gun on himself, struggling, but finally, <laughs> pulling the trigger. Amen, Nancy said, as she gazed upon her estranged husband. Nancy managed to drag herself out of the home and collapsed on a neighbor's front steps. Maurice lived a life haunted by violence, mystery, and misfortune. While many could vouch for a kinder, easygoing side, far too many experienced his abuse and fury. Admittedly, before starting this research, I didn't know the depths of Maurice's experience. The entire time I was wondering, would he see a psychologist unaffiliated with the church? Would he seek medical treatment or be put under some sort of surveillance? Was Maurice and those around him done a disservice? Did the spectacle take away from the gravity of the situation, the sense of urgency for his wife and her children? I can't help but think so. But many, including Ed Warren, believed that Maurice's suicide was a kindness in itself. His last act of mercy, turning the gun on himself instead of Nancy. I guess this is easier to believe, easier than Chief Seibert's reality, in that there was no haunting, just a long string of violence and deception by an unstable man well-versed in manipulation. But, like I said, now you know. And you'll remember the life and exorcism of Maurice Frenchy Theriot. If cryptic stories are your thing, please hit the follow button and subscribe. Or if you have a specific mystery you want to delve into together, feel free to reach out. All right, guys, that's all I have for you tonight. Keep an eye out in the next couple of weeks for our next episode.